Welcome to episode 74 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. Not much. We're getting a little snow. Kind of a weird sort of a surprise uh, squall, but other than that, we're good. All right. I'm glad you're surviving, making your way up there in snowy New England. Yeah, it's nothing compared to what I hear you guys are getting. Yeah, it's been exciting. We've just taken this back into the reform. The weather cast, yeah. again, but yeah, as if people care what kind of weather we're experiencing. That's fine. I will tell you something that has been an unexpected source of entertainment and joy in my life real quick, and this is going to result in a little bit of a game for you. Oh, I like games. Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be fun, and for anybody listening, I guess for that matter. So, at our library, our public library, they several years ago instituted these little library receipts, and I think lots of places do this when you check out a book. Now you get like a little slip of paper out of one of those like receipt machines that says what you checked out and when it's due. Right. What makes this so amazingly and unexpectedly entertaining is sometimes you'll be reading a book and you find somebody else's receipt in yeah. the book that's just been left over. Yes. And you get to see what kind of crazy things they're reading. So. This just happened to my wife like yesterday, and I've got to share this. I have the receipt in front of me. So the game is obviously one of these books she checked out because the receipt was found in one of them. Right. Just one of them. But here was the three books that were on this receipt. So first there was What Happened by Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Second, there was Stitches, a handbook on meeting by Anne Lamott. And then third was Test Your Dog's IQ by Rachel Federin and Gary Bennett. Nice. So I, I don't know if this person is listening, but I just want to ask, what is going on in your life? What What is happening right now that you had these three books out? And yeah. Can we just talk about Jesus? Yeah. I it, it seems like that's the way to go. Yeah. I think what would be another fun game to figure out would be for you to list a receipt like that and for us to try to guess which book you were, which one you had in your hand. So I'm at an advantage because I know you don't own a dog. So you wouldn't be testing your dog's IQ. That's true. All right. So that's, that's some good logic right there. I know that you are a fiend for some workplace productivity. So I'm going to guess it was the one about meetings. The one about meetings. Oh, sorry. That was Stitches, a handbook on meaning. Oh, meaning. By Anne Lamott. Yeah. Oh. And this is, so this is, these are, I should say, this is a book that my wife took out. It wasn't me. Well, I don't think it was the Hillary Clinton one. Maybe I'm really wrong, but. It was Hillary Clinton. Was it? <laughs> Man. So, so my wife isn't really big into politics or a supporter of Hillary Clinton, I'm but she heard this. pastor. She heard this. <laughs> Man, the, the accountability is so real in this podcast. <laughs> She heard that this book was particularly good, and I think she's reading it out of mere curiosity, partly okay. because what cracks me up is the title isn't What Happened! Exclamation point. It's just like, let me tell you what happened. Oh. So, <laughs> it's not a question mark? No, it's not a question. It's not like, I'm so confused. How did I lose this election? Apparently, this is like her tell-all of explaining to us why she lost in spectacular fashion. So anyway, I find the combination of these books absolutely super entertaining, and that I really want to talk to this Renaissance person who took them all out. Doesn't it say on there their name or like their library card number or something? No, it's all discreet. Oh. So all that stuff is withheld. It literally is just the listing of the books and when they're due. Interesting. Yeah. And speaking of interesting topics, yes. me, let's get after one. I know we have a great conversation lined up tonight. And what is that about? So um, we're going to have, this is going to be like the first part of this is going to be the reform disclaimer class, but we're going to be talking about the topic of Lordship salvation and specifically about Lordship salvation as it has been articulated by John MacArthur. Um, and the reason I'm giving that disclaimer is because Lordship salvation, like dispensationalism, which is where it kind of came out of, doesn't have like a uniform confession or creed. So you can't even really talk about Lordship salvation in like broad terms because there's right. no there's no real unifying um document or anything like that. But John MacArthur is kind of the big name. He was kind of the architect and he was also kind of um, the one that probably most of the, what you might call lordship preachers um, that we're used to hearing about or listening to. He's kind of the one that they have, have learned from and emulated. So Paul Washer, Todd Friel, 
um, people in that kind of stream of thought. Um, even someone at times, someone like a Nate Pickowitz sort of falls into the same stream of thought. Um, and that should tell you, this is kind of the second disclaimer. These people are brothers in Christ, right? I would go, uh, shoulder to shoulder with Nate Pickowitz in just about any context, anytime he can come on the show anytime he wants. Um, right on. I love him to death. I talked to him this morning. So this is not a, um, those people aren't Christians or those people are preaching a false gospel or anything like that. And I'm not even sure that Nate would classify himself in this, but just listening to his sermons and knowing kind of the the company he keeps in terms of sort of preachers that are out there, I think he probably does. Um, and he he's at least right now classifies himself as a kind of a Baptist dispensationalist. So that said, MacArthur is kind of the fountainhead of this and the one that most of the the sort of the next following generation have emulated and learned from. So I think it's fair to consider MacArthur kind of a representative sample. Um, and also, MacArthur has things that he's published and things that he's said that have gone all the way across the span of the two and a half decades since the Lordship controversy happened. So we can examine his views across time and see if they've changed, see how they've developed and things like that. So we're going to do a little bit about that. But the reason that I wanted to talk about this, um, as so many of our topics come about, there was all sorts of controversy and arguing and, and good discussion happening in the reformed uh, pubosphere that I inhabit most of the time about Lordship Salvation. And um, particularly what I noticed happening was as we started talking about this, people started coming out of the woodwork to say, yeah, when I listen to Paul Washer, I wonder if I'm a Christian. And that, to be honest, like that just breaks my heart because if you are delivering an, a message to a group of Christians, a sermon or some sort of lecture or any sort of um, verbal communication that contains theological truths about God and the gospel to a group of Christians to have a, any of them walk away, but a large portion of them walk away feeling like you may be convinced and they shouldn't be so sure of their salvation is not a good thing. And people look at that and they they think like Paul Washer, you know, he's always making people question their salvation and they paint it as though that's somehow a good thing. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this tonight. I wanted to talk about some of the things we've alluded to this in the past. I wanted to talk about what is distinct about Lordship Salvation that's different than kind of classic reformed thought, apart from just being sort of in this dispensationalist milieu. What about the soteriology is distinct and what, what's different and where are some of the problems? And then I want to I want to spend some time talking about where it is as Reformed Christians we actually get assurance of salvation because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about that topic as well. And this is one of those things where I think there's an unexpected outworking that people often don't even realize. So when they're listening to somebody like Paul Washer, and he gets credited because he's a really great preacher, yeah. if not only in his oration. But they sense, well, that power must be legit. It must be real in terms of like the conviction he's bringing. Like he comes with just, it's all thrust at you. And yeah. you, you need to understand how to interpret that best. You need to understand like what he's saying. So the words here matter. The order of things matter. And I think most of the time people hear Lordship Salvation, they think one thing. They think one like overarching thing. But really it's about matters of understanding faith and like I said, soteriology right. and order salutes and stuff like that. So, so let's get into all that. Yeah. So I, I'm going to start by reading sort of a lengthy quote from um, Paul Washer's famous sermon. It didn't have a title at the time, but it's, it's become known as the shocking uh, oh, youth, the youth sermon. sermon. And um, you know, if you watched Les's Calvinist movie, or if you ever hear about Paul Washer, this is the famous one. Um, and this is where the, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. This is where it came from. So I'm going to read it. It's a lengthy portion, but I think we need to hear the whole thing to uh, get at the context. And my I understanding was that he was, a, he was addressing sort of a large youth gathering um, of, of Christians from youth groups, basically like kind of like your acquire the fire, Billy Graham crusade, kind of a thing where there's a lot of Christians in the audience or people who think they're Christians. And he starts out, he says, I stand here today and I'm not troubled in my heart about your self-esteem. I'm not troubled in my heart about whether or not you feel good about yourself, whether or not life is turning out like you wanted it to turn out, or whether or not your checkbook is balanced. There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night. There's only one thing that troubled me all throughout the morning, and this is this. Within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell, and many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend eternity in hell. You say, Pastor, how can you say such a thing? 
I can say such a thing because I don't do my Christian work in America. I spend most of my time preaching in South America, in Africa, and Eastern Europe. And I want you to know that when you look at American Christianity, it is based more upon a godless culture than it is upon the Word of God. And so many people are deceived, and so many youth are deceived, and so many adults are deceived into believing that because they prayed a prayer at one time in their life, they're going to heaven. And then when they look around at others who profess to know Christ and see those people also just as worldly as the world, and they compare themselves by themselves, nothing troubles their heart. They think, well, I'm the same as most in my youth group. I watch things I shouldn't watch on television, laugh about the very things that God hates. I wear clothing that is sensual. I talk like the world. I walk like the world. I love the music of the world. I love so much that's in the world, but bless God, I'm a Christian. Why am I a Christian? I don't look any different than most of the other people in my church. Why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. And here's the the big clip we usually get. I want you to know that the greatest heresy in the American evangelical and Protestant church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, he will definitely come in. You will not find that any place in scripture. You will not find that anywhere in Baptist history until about 50 years ago. What you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance, a turning away from sin, a hatred of the things that God hates, and a love for the things that God loves, a growing in holiness, and a desire not to be like Britney Spears, not to be like the world, and not to be like the great majority of American churches, but to be like Jesus Christ. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. I didn't come here to get amens. I didn't come here to be applauded. I'm talking about you. So this this is the sermon. This is the quote that people look at. And a lot of people say, that right there was the change in my life. That right there was the game changer. And I have a theory about why that is. It's probably going to offend a lot of people, and we're going to come back to that. But Jesse, what, what do you think about that, just sort of hearing it off the, off the cuff? So the thing is, it's powerful. Even hearing you read it in your voice, it carries some weight. I think the reason why that's been so powerful, and I don't know if this comports with your theory, is that it's presenting, I would say, like an alternative view of what it means to be saved in the sinner's prayer that actually better comports with the Bible. So there's parts of that that aren't altogether far off course. Right. But if you listen intently to what he's saying, there are parts when he's speaking about repentance, for instance, that are really troublesome because that's certainly not the dominant perspective in Scripture, nor was it the one in Reformed theology writ large. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's take a little bit of a look at a couple of those spots. So kind of in the, the end part of it, it says, what you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone. Great. We're right there. In Jesus Christ. Great. And Fine. here's what he says. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance. That's key. That's really important for us to latch into. And then he has what's called an positive statement, which is he defines what the word repentance is. He says, a turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, and a love for the things that God loves, a growing in holiness and a desire not to be like Britney Spears, which I'm assuming is just whoever he picked as sort of the representative sample of what the world looks like. So he defines, I think that definition of repentance is actually pretty good. Uh, it's on the, fun. On the grand scheme of things but where it's troubling is it says faith alone is preceded and followed by repentance so if you listen carefully and you really parse out his words and i want to i want to be charitable that this is um a man preaching it didn't appear that he was preaching from notes so he's kind of going off the cuff i'm sure he prepared well but he's not reading a manuscript he's preaching passionately and we all know that when you're talking publicly or any other instance it's easy to sort of twist things around but that said what he actually says here is that it's possible to grow in holiness prior to justification and the reason that i draw that out of this is because he says prior to faith right and when we have faith we are justified prior to faith we're able to grow in holiness and a desire not to be like the world now, that right. is just astounding to me because it makes no sense whatsoever on a reform perspective. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know what to say to that because both many reformed theologians have articulated that faith produces obedience. Right. And when you get to the place where you start to suggest that faith is obedience, that's confusing justification and sanctification. So my perspective would be 
repentance does not precede faith, but rather flows from it. So I think why we listen to this, and even as Christians, we feel like beat over the head if we have any sensibility about our assurance and salvation, is that he also levies the whole thing in the end by saying, I'm talking about you. Yeah. And so you feel like, well, then what I, whatever I just thought before then has totally been dismantled because now he's saying, or at least applying, that you've misunderstood everything altogether. Yeah. But you're right to say the the big piece of this, the, the crux of that is that faith precedes repentance. Yes. Um, that we've got to make sense of that. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the reason I wanted to start there is because oftentimes we hear these messages, right? We listen to the shocking youth sermon, or we listen to, uh, John MacArthur, or we read the gospel according to Jesus by MacArthur or the gospel according to the apostles by MacArthur. And there's not anything that jumps out at us as like, this is terrible theology. Right. But when we really parse it out and it's fair to do that, especially when we're talking about a printed written medium, it's fair for us to read sentences and analyze the language carefully. So it, it may seem like it's nitpicking for me to say that, but he was not just, um, he could have been mistaken. He could have misspoke and maybe he would clarify that. I don't know if he has, but maybe he would. Um, but when we're talking about written words, right, we're going to look at a bunch of different written quotes by John MacArthur in a minute here. Um, it's fair for us to look at the words and assess the words as they are on the paper. And in the absence of some sort of correction later on, it's fair of us to, to be critical and to be, um, analytical of what's on the page. Right. Exactly. Because we do this in other areas of life. It may, right. it may seem like all we're doing is putting somebody else on blast, but let's say if you're trying to teach somebody how to drive stick, I mean, you've got words like clutch, brake, gas, shift. You can, you can throw all those together. They'll all be right. And the instructions will all sound pretty good. But if you get them out of order, you're about to jack up the transmission. Yeah. So we do expect that there would be some kind of analytical rigor when we're talking about important things, especially the order of things. Right. Every permutation cannot be correct. That is beyond the scope of reality. So this, I think, to me, is like a totally legitimate conversation. And this is what I meant by saying, when we talk about lordship salvation, it rarely goes in this direction, but I think it should because right. these are the underpinnings that really shape the whole thing. Yeah, and I do want to comment quick too. A lot of times these conversations get sidetracked into what I think is a misunderstanding of what's going on in the Lordship controversy. So in the Lordship controversy, um, there was Zane Hodges, that group, and they were saying, all you got to do is at some point in life, acknowledge the facts of the gospel. And as long right. as you've acknowledged the facts of the gospel and prayed a prayer, then no matter what you're justified, that, that itself justifies you. It's its own form of works righteousness, Right. The, right. the prayer that you pray is efficacious to bring about your justification and it can never be revoked. MacArthur responds to that and he's wanting to say, no, no, no. If you, after salvation, after justification, live like hell, and by that I mean live as though there's no, uh, no accountability, there's no law, there's no rules. If you live that way, then what we, what we can deduce and it's important to say we deduce, we don't know it, but what we can deduce is that whatever it was you experienced before was not genuine Christian faith. Now, that on its surface, the Reformed would have no disagreement with, right? The right, necessity exactly. of antecedent um, evidentiary holiness is a totally Reformed perspective, and we're going to talk about that towards the end of the episode. But where it gets to be a problem that the Reformed objected to this, right? And this is primarily coming from my reading of a book called Christ the Lord, which is um, a, an edited volume edited by Mike Horton, but really just the first introductory um, introduction by Horton is it kind of is all you need to read about that book. The rest of the essays are great, but he he dismantles the whole thing. The objection is not one or the one of those is right one of those is wrong he clearly says well macarthur is right between those two parties but the objection is in the ordo salutis which is right. the logical order of the salvation events so in time right all of these things are happening coterminously or simultaneously at the same time right the the granting of faith by the holy spirit and justification and positional sanctification repentance conversion all of these things are happening at an instant in time union with christ all of it is happening at exactly the same moment 
Because in the moment that we have faith, that the Holy Spirit gives us faith, in that very moment, we are united to Christ, we are justified, we are made positionally and definitively sanctified, and we repent. We turn from our sin because we now see who we were in our fallen estate. And now we turn to Christ who has clung to us, and we return that clinging, right? Christ grasps us, and our response in faith is to grasp him back. But that right. response in faith has to come logically after the faith itself. Right. I'm glad you me? brought it up that way because we need, we're, well, I think what we're trying to say is that if we ask, can true repentance stand apart from faith? The answer is obviously no. Right. But, but even though they can't be separated, they ought to be distinguished. And right. that's where that, the fine line of understanding where they come in the order, logical order of things is super important. And part of this is every theologian in some ways is a product of their own time and own circumstances. So as we get into the MacArthur stuff, my th- feeling is he wanted to push so hard against antinomianism that what he ended up doing is swinging the pendulum almost into error in a totally different way. And so when we start to say something different where, well, repentance is good and all, but justification is not fully realized. It's, there's no kind of full-orbed understanding of justification unless repentance makes it efficacious. And that's where we get into trouble. And we need to kind of understand when we hear this kind of teaching that we're, where we can see that in play. Yeah. So it, it is really important. Like, I don't, I mean, I love you. So I'm, I'm, I don't think you're being nitpicky at all, but I, I think <laughs> this is the kind of thing that opened my mind to understanding what Lordship Salvation really means, what, what it's really espousing. Yeah. So I want to read just a, a section out of Bob Inc. Because what I'm trying to do here, I, I feel like I'm hammering this and I'm just going to keep hammering it until we get it, is we have to understand most people hear the idea. So this, this is the reformed ordo salutis. And there have been people who disagree with it in the reform camp. William Perkins is one of them. You know, there's all sorts of people, but by and large, the main testimony of the reformed tradition is that faith, justification, repentance. That's the order. Repentance comes after justification. It's a response to union with Christ, not before. And that's one of the main errors, and we'll see that when we get into MacArthur stuff. But I just want to read this section on Abav Inc. Uh, I'm going to summarize a little bit. He starts out, he said, This is why Calvin is not concerned to frame a theory of conversion, but rather to answer the question, on what basis must the regenerate person, knowing himself to be a sinner, ground his validation, his being accepted before God? Calvin, like Luther, is well aware of a penitence that precedes faith, and consists right. in contrition of heart and self-mortification before God. There are many who are overwhelmed by qualms of conscience or compelled to obedience before they are imbued with the knowledge of grace or even taste it. But this is merely an initial fear, a legalistic penitence that does not with infallible certainty lead to faith. Nor does Calvin want to describe how variously Christ draws us to himself or prepares us for the pursuit of godliness. He expressly rejects the doctrine of many Anabaptists, according to which new converts must first practice penitence for a few days in order thereafter to be admitted into the communion of grace. In Calvin, the accent lies on a different kind of penitence, namely that which proceeds or comes from faith. It is possible only in communion with Christ continues throughout life and consists in mortification and vivification. And then he quotes Calvin, he says, both of which happen to us by participation in Christ. And he carries on on the next page. Um, and he says, Calvin took exception to this division that is dividing contrition and faith or what was kind of called repentance and faith. Though he recognized that repentance and faith were closely connected and that strictly speaking, the former repentance is not possible without the latter faith and rather flows from it. He observed that scripture regularly distinguishes between the two and mentions them side by side. And therefore, repentance and faith, although held together by permanent bond, require to be joined rather than confused. So to sum that all up, what he's saying is that Calvin recognized that there was a sort of obedience that came about. He calls it penitence that came about in people prior to faith. But this was not biblical repentance. This was a legalistic fear of consequences kind of a thing. People did what God said because they were afraid that God was going to smite them. That's not repentance. That's what he's saying. But what he says is the genuine repentance that the Bible portrays comes after faith because it is the result of union with Christ. So that is that is absolutely vital. The reformed position is I'm saying this definitively. The reformed position is that repentance comes from union with Christ. 
Right. And faith comes prior to union with Christ logically. Like I said, all of these things happen at the same moment in time, but faith brings about union, or I should say Christ brings about union with himself through faith. And then from that union comes repentance, which Calvin defines as constitutive of mortification and vivification, which is right. sanctification. So he's saying repentance is part of sanctification. Right. I mean, boom, like yeah, show over, I guess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Our show or just general? Just general. All podcasts are now canceled. Can I, is that possible? I don't want yeah, to do that. I think we have the authority to do that. And when you say that though, you're making a definitive definition, but you're also standing on the shoulders mm-hmm. of those like Calvin who have said the same thing. So right. this is not outside the reform realm, which is why I find it so strange when like MacArthur says repentance is a critical element of genuine faith because yeah. he's not at all being consistent with the Reformation position. And maybe part of this is about definition of terms. I really like that quote a lot because it starts to parse out how you could have a coming to Christ, in quotation marks, that is based on this sense of penitence or legalistic contrition, but that is not repentance because both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek is abundantly clear that repentance means a turning, a 180 degree directional shift. And I don't think anybody probably within earshot of our voices that's reformed would argue that that can happen except after God has changed the heart, right? Right. Yeah, so therefore, it, it's done. Yeah. Yeah, and we have to be careful because that language of changing the heart, right? That's that's the language we use when we talk about regeneration. So what right. the, the Lordship Salvation Camp is saying is that, okay, regeneration happens. And then because we have this new heart, we can trust Jesus and we can repent. And once we've trusted and repented, uh, repented, then we're justified. Right? right. So they take repentance and they flip it to the other side of the order of salutis on the front end of justification. But what we're talking about though, is that regeneration is great, it's, but it's not union with Christ. Right. And it's right. union exactly. with Christ that brings about sanctification. We can be regenerate. At least theoretically, there could be a period of time where regeneration happens that we are are not growing in sanctification, right? We're regenerated, we're granted faith, we're justified, and we're positionally sanctified. But there can be time where we're not growing in sanctification. And that's where the, this lack of assurance comes in is people look at it and go, well, I, I don't know. I haven't had any real growth in a few a few months. Maybe I'm not saved. And that's like a right. real struggle that people have. It is. That's not right. And that's because they're being taught that the only reason you can prove your justification is if your obedience is efficacious to make yourself justified. Exactly. Just before I forget, um, that was out of volume three in Bobbing's Reform Dogmatics, and it was on page 525 through 527. I mean, really, the whole whole chapter needs to be read, but that's that's the sections I read. And this is where, so like to defend Paul Washer just a little bit, this is where I think, based on what you just read from Bobbing, he does get it right, or the emphasis is in the right place, because I think what he's saying is, you can, again, in quotation marks, come to Jesus with this some kind of expression of feeling sorry or guilty or contrite yeah. and still not be unified with Christ. Right. I think that's what he's driving at. And I agree, I think we both agree with that. Like that's yeah. the thing is the sinner's prayer, the concept of say these words are words like these and automatically somehow this is what gets you into the kingdom of heaven. He's pushing against that. It's just what he moves to beyond that part and kind of, he's impounding the order of Salutis and what he's saying. And so if you're a Christian hearing that, you're kind of like, or you can be like, dang, like you said, maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian because right. I'm, I feel like I'm under attack and he may be right about the fact that I cannot justify myself with what I've been doing in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, this is what brings me to my sort of possibly offensive, uh, my own sort of shocking youth message, I guess you could call it, is... <laughs> The reason okay. that this topic, the reason that this quote particularly is popular is because a lot of the new Calvinists point to that sermon, right? It was it was prominently featured in Les's movie. There's right. a lot of the new Calvinists that point to that sermon as the point where they got, they, they usually they frame it as like, that's when I got serious about my faith or that's when my faith became real to me. And here's what I want to propose. They weren't Christians at all to start with. Right. And so, so. Paul Washer comes in, and, and we haven't talked about in too depth, too great a depth, the three uses of the law. But Paul Washer comes in, and he he bangs on that first use of the law, right? The first use of the law that convicts non-Christians of their sin and kills them and, and forces them to Christ. A lot of these guys 
are pointing at that as the beginning of their sort of like renewed faith. But I want to say, you know what? The reason why that was efficacious for you is because you weren't a Christian. So you were literally not a Christian. And then he applied the law to you and you became a Christian where it's becoming a problem now is that a lot of those same people are taking those sermons, that theology, and they're applying it to Christians to try to to push them towards holiness because right. they're conceptualizing their their experience as I was a carnal Christian, I was a a converted Christian who was living like a pagan, and then Paul Washer's message kind of made me get serious about my faith. But that actually kind of rejects the whole purpose of his message is to deny those categories to start with. So exactly. either you were a Christian and and you didn't need to hear that because maybe you were backsliding, but it, it was the first use of the law, so it wasn't applicable to you. Or you weren't a Christian and that was your conversion point, which is highly right. likely and I think probably most people. But where we're running into problems now is when we apply that that theology, that message to Christians, rather than drive them to holiness, which is what the law is supposed to do for Christians, it's it's crushing them with despair. It's crushing them with the weight of this law that they can't bear. And the problem is that Paul Washer's sermon is not giving them the Christ who bears that law for them. Right? I've read the whole sermon. There's not really much in there about about um the gospel. The gospel. Honestly. Right? It's you if you want to be if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to live a life of holiness, then you need to get your you need to get your crap together. I mean, that's right. the summary of the the sermon, right? And that's that's not the gospel. So, I, I mean, do you want to have any last words on that before we kind of pivot to MacArthur? In some way, isn't this? And we've talked about this in another episode. It, it's almost higher life theology by another name. Yeah. And what it's strange to me is basically what he's proposing is. This is like being a United States citizen and feeling like you have to apply for a green card. It just doesn't mm-hmm. apply. And so I, I think you're right. That's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but it sounds like what you're saying is you're perceiving that that message was actually the genesis that actually started essentially a journey of faith rather than the other way around. Right. And the carnal Christian category is something, you know, in Lordship Salvation, it's all, altogether different anyway. So that kind of betrays a sense of where we might have been before in hearing this and then trying to apply it in a new way. So right. I, I mean, I haven't thought about that before, but I think you're probably right. That's an interesting idea. I mean, it's always strange anyway, when I hear reformed people speak of becoming reformed as like a second salvation, yeah. you know what I mean? Like a, a second birth um, or a third birth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I don't, I don't have permission to share a name, so I'm not going to, but I, I had a discussion. It was right after um, kind of circulating when we did the episode where we kind of came down on the Game of Thrones thing. And what's what people yeah. I'm sure are going to point at is I said some of those same kinds of things about people who watch Game of Thrones, right? If, you, if you're watching what amounts to pornography and you're not disturbed by that in any sense, you think it's just fine, then maybe you need to ask the question if you're really a Christian. And I had a conversation with someone after that, that episode that said something like, well, I don't know if I agree with you because when I was in college, I had this season where I just was not bothered by my porn addiction. And and then I got to a point where I it finally got to me and I, I realized that it was really hurting hurting me and it was, you know, and they had the whole like experience. And I said, you know, maybe you weren't a Christian though. Did you ever think about that? And they right. kind of were like, no, 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 that's not it. But they, then they got really mad and then they came back to me, I don't know, a week later and said, you know, I think you probably were right that I wasn't actually converted because I wasn't, I wasn't in any sense disturbed by my sin. I mean, I had a period of wandering when I was in college where I was doing a lot of things that I knew I shouldn't. I was engaging in behavior that I knew I shouldn't, but there was always this, this sense where I was, I knew I was living in rebellion and it it bothered me. I just didn't do anything about it, but it still bothered me. Right. And I don't, I I don't know. I mean, I can't say for certainty that I was or wasn't a, a Christian at that point. I think I probably was because I was never fully comfortable with my sin. I always knew it was sin. I always felt terrible about it. I always, right. That's it. There the was point. always contrition. Um, but, but this guy was saying like, there was no contrition whatsoever. There was no hesitancy. There was nothing at all. So I, I, that's kind of what got me thinking about that is that a lot of these guys really do rather than thinking about this as I wasn't a Christian, I heard Paul Washer's sermon and realized I wasn't a Christian. And then I came to faith in Christ. They're thinking of it as like, well, I was a Christian, but I was kind of this worldly Christian. And then he kind of convinced me to get my stuff together, which the whole point of his sermon was there's no such thing as a worldly Christian. Exactly. So it's kind of a cognitive dissonance there. It it is. And I think maybe it's important to say 
we need to distinguish between the content of faith and the consequences of faith. Yeah. So to say that, that works are the expression of faith does not mean works are the essence of faith. Right. And so there's we've got to understand the difference between those things. Otherwise, we're bound to go off in error, like you're saying, where somebody will think, well, I was a Christian before, but I mean, you have to ask, if you never had any misgivings about sin, even if you thought you were a Christian then, if you've since come into faith and unity with Christ and you look back on that and say, isn't that wild that I could live that whole period of time and not feel any sense of conviction or contrition? Shouldn't we rightfully ask, well, maybe my definition of Christianity under which I was living for that short period of time or whatever was just entirely wrong, that I wasn't yeah. actually a Christian. Like it's it's kind of okay to say that because if, if anything gives God glory that he can save us and change us in such a way that it's not just intellectual assent, but there is a heart attitude which says, these things that I do now, I perceive as wrong because I am being, I've been the imputed righteousness of Christ, which wants to go to war over these things. And before there was no war. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we pivot a little bit and, and move on to MacArthur's, um, MacArthur's statement. So do you have that section out of Christ the Lord that we looked up earlier? I think that's probably I the sure right place do. to start. Absolutely. You want me just to bust this bad boy out? Let's do it. Okay. All right, so this is from Christ the Lord, and this is from the, the opening introduction, which is written by Horton, which is fantastic. And, and he writes, so he's writing here, but he's going to state, restate some quotes from MacArthur. So here's what he says. When MacArthur writes, real faith results in obedience, there is nothing with which we would take issue. However, when he adds repeatedly such statements as the following, we cannot help but take issue with them. Disobedience is unbelief. True faith is humble, submissive obedience. We have already seen that repentance is a critical element of genuine faith. In other words, faith encompasses obedience. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. And Horton says we could go on and on. Yeah, so all of those statements where um, you're hearing repentance or obedience be collapsed into faith, that's MacArthur speaking, not Horton. And right. I believe, I, I don't have the book in front of me because Jesse is borrowing it, um, I believe that all of those are quotes from the original edition of the gospel according to Jesus. That is correct. So this was um, MacArthur's book-length response to the controversy. This was him trying to seal the controversy. And by and large, with this book, he did. The lordship or the anti-lordship people kind of lost credibility after that point. They kind of came back and they're sort of circulating again. But for a long time, the controversy was kind of wrapped up. There wasn't a lot of pushback. So that was, I think, 1994, maybe. So we're talking 20 plus years ago. So right. one of the things that the Lordship folks will point at is like, well, that was just unclear language. Some of the language has been updated since then. We really should judge him based on what he's saying now versus what he was saying then. So I went and I pulled together a series of quotes from various years over the last two decades. And I just want to read some of them. Um, and, and this isn't a trying to get a, like a gotcha moment. I just want to make sure we're all being upfront about what the situation is. So this was from an article on Christianity.com titled, What is Faith? MacArthur writes, and this was 2007, MacArthur writes, Believing in Jesus means both confessing him as Savior and yielding to him as Lord. In fact, Scripture often uses the word obedience as a synonym for faith. So just, just let that simmer for a second. Scripture often <laughs> uses the word obedience as a synonym for faith. Yeah, for faith. Let that breathe for a second. I know. It, it, yeah, don't breathe in too deeply. Um, this is from the Gospel According to Jesus. I don't know which year this was, which edition it was, but it was on page 31 of whichever edition it was. Faith like grace is not static. Saving faith is more than just understanding the facts and mentally acquiescing. It is inseparable from repentance, surrender, and a supernatural eagerness to obey. The biblical concept of saving faith includes all of those elements. So he's saying the biblical concept of saving faith includes repentance, surrender, and an eagerness, a supernatural eagerness to obey. Um, from uh, an article on Grace to You uh, from 2016, the call of the gospel is to trust him. That necessarily involves some degree of love, allegiance, and surrender to his authority. Okay. And then this is from a, a, 
this was from a question and answer that wasn't dated. Um, the copyright says 2018, but I think they're just pulling the copyright from um, whatever the copyright of the webpage is. It says, true saving faith involves repentance from one's sin and a complete trust in the work of Christ to save from sin and make one righteous. So just a side note, the complete trust. I don't know anybody that has complete trust. I don't have complete trust. Right. So if what MacArthur is saying here is true, then I don't have saving faith because my trust is not perfect. Side right. note. And then he also says in that same article, the reformer spoke of three aspects of faith, re- recognition of the truth claims of the gospel, acknowledgement of their truthfulness, and exact correspondence to a man's spiritual need, and a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by virtue of his death, provides the only sufficient sacrifice for one's personal sin. So we didn't talk about the definition of faith. But one of the common themes that you'll see when you, if you read that that introduction by Horton is that Horton takes a the classic uh, reformational definition of faith, which is three components. There's a census or notitia, which is knowledge, so knowledge, knowledge. Of, of the facts of the gospel. Right. There's a census, which is assent to the truth of those facts. And then there's fiducia. Fiducia, as the reformers defined it, was a receptive passive faculty, right? So God gives us this passive faculty by which we receive those truths that we've assented to and they are appropriated to us. And through that passive faculty, that receptive instrument is what the Belgic confession calls it. That receptive instrument, we are saved. That's why we're saved through faith and not by faith, right? So that's important is a common theme is that he takes that third part, that fiducia, and he actually defines it as something closer to faithfulness rather than trust, which is what it actually means. Right. And I just want His to read definition this. Go ahead. Is basically, well, I was going to say that last part is the most critical because that's the place that he turns on its head because traditionally the reformed community would understand that to be a conviction that all those true facts are true in my case and form my salvation, like exactly. you said. But he takes that, at least in my estimation, and says, now we're going to make a determination of the will to obey the truth. And that's totally different. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And so this is the last quote I want to read. And this is, if you go to uh, gracechurch.org, which is his church's website, um, I think it's his church's website, but it's an article by him. um, And it's titled Distinctives of Lordship Salvation. Right. And so in this article, he is defining for um, the readers what it is that he currently, as of right now, means when he talks about lordship salvation. And he goes through nine distinctives. Um, But I want to read the first paragraph says there are many articles of faith that are fundamental to all evangelical teaching. For example, there is agreement among believers on the following truths. First, Christ's death purchased eternal salvation. Second, the saved are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Third, sinners cannot earn divine favor. Fourth, God requires no preparatory works or pre-salvation reformation. That's really important for us to key on in on. Fifth, eternal life is a gift of God. Sixth, believers are saved before their faith ever produces any righteous works. Remember that. And then right. seven, Christians can and do sin sometimes horribly. So that's what he's saying is all evangelical Protestants affirm that. Now, um, going down to, we'll look at the sixth distinctive. The rest of the distinctives are important to look at, but this is the one that really caught my attention. He says, sixth, scripture teaches that Jesus is Lord of all and the faith he demands involves unconditional surrender. Okay. So faith involves unconditional surrender. Right. Again, I don't know anyone who can say with a straight face that they are unconditionally surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. If MacArthur can say that to me, then I will call him a liar to his face. But I don't think that he would even say that he he is unconditionally surrendered to Christ. Because he says, just up the page, Christians can and do sin sometimes horribly. So a Christian who can sin is not unconditionally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Right. I'm kind of getting fired up. I need to breathe, calm down a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, let me say this. How about this? Why don't we, why don't I give you some ideas of what I think Reformed theology says faith is not. Well, okay? let, let me finish this quote real quick because I think oh, it's you're really still, important. There's still more. There's still Man, more to this one. This is, a, right, this is a quote heavy episode. So go he ahead. says, uh, faith demand involves unconditional surrender. In other words, Christ does not bestow eternal life on those whose hearts remain set against him. Great. We would agree with that. Sure. And he says, surrender to the Lord, Jesus' the Lordship is not an addendum to the biblical terms of salvation. 
Okay, so we're talking about contracts, terms. He says the summons to submission is at the heart of the gospel invitation throughout Scripture. Okay, then he says, in contrast, easy believism, which is what he's calling sort of the non-lordship teaching that he's responding to. Easy believism teaches that submission to Christ's supreme authority is not germane to the saving transaction. So before you go where you wanted to go, let me just say one last thing. Another common feature in this discussion is a lack of clarity as to what's being talked about. So um, right. Horton calls this out, but there's a confusion. Sometimes salvation, the word salvation, refers to the entire process of salvation. Sanctification, glorification, resurrection, all of it. Sometimes it's talking about justification specifically. It's talking about what happens through faith at that moment of conversion. And the fact that he talks about the saving transaction here leads me to believe that he's talking about justification. So if we reverse what he's, so he's saying easy believism is wrong in that it teaches that submission to Christ's supreme authority is not germane to the saving transaction. That means that what he's saying is lordship salvation teaches that submission to Christ's supreme authority is germane to the saving transaction. And if saving transaction means justification, he's saying submission to Christ's supreme authority is germane to justification, right? So what we're talking about is that MacArthur throughout the last two decades, right? We read something from just about every decade. We got the the 90s, we've got the, the 2000s, and we've got the 2000 teens, okay? Every single decade, we've got a quote of him saying repentance, obi- uh, uh, submission, obedience are all part of faith, right? So that means that those things are the instrumental means of salvation rather than faith alone. Repentance, right. submission, uh, allegiance, faithfulness are all part of the instrumental means of salvation for MacArthur. He doesn't think that. He doesn't. He hasn't put those together, right? He denies that logical conclusion, but that is a necessary logical conclusion from what he's saying. Right. I agree. It seems very plain, right? Yes. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think he would have to agree with that if you presented him with all the stuff that he's written. He may try to finagle some of the definitions, but there's no doubt that that's what he's st- stating. So that's why I thought it would be helpful to say, here's what faith is not, because MacArthur is in the reform camp, but here is a place where he deviates substantially from the historical position. Right. right? So, yeah. you know, I would say it, according to reformation theology, faith is not a bunch of things. And maybe this is going to sound drastic, but this has been so helpful in my own education of understanding these things that when you speak to people, when you understand what salvation means for yourself and those with whom you're preaching the gospel, you have firm ground on which to stand. That is absolutely biblical. So faith is not conversion. It's not obeying God's commands. It's not repentance or commitment to a new life. It's going to produce inevitably all those effects. Right. But it should not be confused with the effects. And I think we've talked about that before in terms of the blessings and benefits of Christ as opposed to Christ himself. So here's my grand like hypothetical question in response to everything you just read. Is there any real substantial difference between saying one is justified by faith and works, which would be obedience, right? And saying one is justified by faith alone, but faith includes works in its definition. And until one's faith is obedient, it's not justifying. Yeah. Is there any difference? No, no, there's not. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's what kicked this whole thing off is that I made the statement. This was maybe a little bit of a snotty way to say it, but I basically said faith is obedience and submission. And then I wrote hashtag we affirm against the papists. <laughs> right? And and Horton makes the point, and I commented on an earlier episode. Horton is um, uncharacteristically sharp in this essay. I don't know yes. if you experienced that when you were reading it, but he I, is I uncharacteristically harsh on MacArthur. And I think there's probably a variety of reasons. This was 20 plus years ago, so he was younger. Um, he was probably a little less tempered. He hadn't been through his own controversies that he had to defend himself in. But all of that said, I think also this is a really big deal. We're talking about the heart of the gospel. We're talking about the article on which religion, Christian religion, rises or falls, the hinge of our faith, right? This is a huge deal. And I started out this episode by talking about how what this has produced in our generation is a lot of people who are Christians, 
They're, they're Christians. I have no reason to doubt their salvation. They are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. They're studying the scriptures. They love Jesus. They love their brothers and sisters. They're right. faithfully attending to the means of grace. Everything that marks a Christian, the fruit of the spirit is present in their life. And what happens is they've been taught to check that fruit, to look to that fruit as for assurance. And then they have a moment where they slip. I had a moment last week that I said something really mean, really mean about my coworker to another person in my office. And I, I went and I apologized. I recognized how terrible that was. And I, I used the word sin with them. I was very transparent about what I thought happened in that situation. But a lot of people will have that moment and they'll say that was rotten fruit. How can a Christian produce rotten fruit? I was told that I know that I'm a good tree because of my good fruit. So if I have rotten fruit, what does that mean? Right. And they doubt their salvation. That is a that, tragedy. That's a problem. It is a tragedy. It's worth getting upset about because that's moving into the wrong ends altogether. So I think we're on the same page. And if I'm gathering what you're saying, it's kind of like two people sitting, hearing the gospel preach. The Christian gets up from that and glorifies God and walks out with like a swagger, so to speak, because they know they're assured in their salvation. The unbeliever is crushed by that. Yes. And it shouldn't be they both walk out crushed or they both walk out feeling like a million bucks, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, we'll have to do an episode specifically on line gospel, and that was one of the kind of one of the top oh, issues coming. for 2018 that we wanted to tackle. But this is all in the same air, right? This is part of the legalism, yes. antinomianism conversation that we're going to be having all year is – when And I, I tweeted this, and there was a lot of traction. There was a lot of people who loved it. There was a lot of people who hated it. But when the law and the gospel is preached correctly, right, the way that the Bible teaches us to preach it, non-Christians walk away feeling crushed. And that either drives them to Christ to become Christians, or it drives them to further despair as non-Christians who have no hope. But that's right. what the law is supposed to do for Christians. A Christian walking out of a sermon where the law and the gospel is properly preached uh, preached should feel blessed and edified because they're no longer under the weight of that law they cannot bear because Christ bore it on their behalf and now right. they can live like the Christ who bore the law on their behalf they can walk in freedom and newness of life Paul Washer's sermons granted a small selection of them right we're not hearing everything he preaches but that shocking youth message does not do that for Christians it doesn't it can't because it doesn't, it doesn't talk about how the law gives us a model for holiness. It just talks about how the law condemns those who are apart from Christ. But what right. about those who are in Christ? What does the law serve for them as well? And it essentially says, if I can take it one step further, if you don't think this is unfair, that you must in some way obey the law so that that fruit can confirm that you even had faith to begin with. Right. And that's and, their great problem. And there's a truth to that, right? All of the best, um, the best errors are slight variations of the truth, right? right? So, so that's where I want to take the conversation in our last like 15 minutes. Let's do um, it, or seven minutes. <laughs> this is going to be another long episode, <laughs> folks. So, now I want to talk about assurance because that's that's what this all boils down to is that lordship salvation. And I hope this isn't too strong of a statement, but lordship salvation as a whole has done very little for Christians except to undercut their assurance. There are a class of people who were not Christians who are now Christians because of the Lordship movement. Great. Praise God. That's awesome. But sure. the Christians who are are sitting under that, by and large, have a weaker assurance of faith than the people who sit under good reformational preaching. So what I want to talk about is where we ground our assurance of faith. Because this is a disagreement in the reform community. And right. I think it's really important because people like MacArthur and people like Washer, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, what they're saying is you ground your assurance in the fact that you have fruit. You check the you check the fruit to prove the root. That's a phrase that I heard a lot of times this last week, and it's not right. really biblical. No, it it smacks of kind of a biblical nature only because of what you just said that we're still we're definitely not saying that there shouldn't be fruit in your lives it's just this issue i keep going back to the word efficacious that right. faith is made efficacious by the fruit that's the problem right so, so where do we where do we look for assurance i mean the only way i can describe it is basically in hearing what you said especially about faith 
I don't think there's any great Christian with great faith or praiseworthy character. I mean, maybe that's because I'm speaking only out of my own life. But there's only going to be a Christian who is confident that they share with every regenerate Christian every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So yeah. the Christian is, as Luther said, simultaneously sinful and justified. They're going to be simultaneously at peace with God because of Christ's imputed righteousness, but they will still be at war with themselves because of Christ's imputed righteousness. So an example of my own life, I would often you know, read Revelation, get to the part about the sheep and the goats and speak to my father, who's a fantastic pastor, and really come to him disturbed because I would ask, what if I am one of the goats? Yeah. And one of the best pieces of advice that he ever gave to me uh, that I still think about a lot is if you're asking that question, you're probably not. Yeah. So the idea that there is conviction in your life, that there is not necessarily some kind of forced rote obedience, but that you perceive that the spirit is working in refining your character and bringing to light your own sinfulness is a place I think where we can ground our assurance, but only because the Christian trusts and obeys Christ and will continue to do so, not because they have appropriated Christ, but of course because he has appropriated them. Yeah. So we've, we've got to find, I'm trying to kind of answer your question around the theology, which would just say, you got to have unity with Christ. Like nobody's right. going to debate that. But how do we actually know? And for me, one of the places where I know that is because I continue to see revealed in my life these large gaps, not even large gaps, it's not fair, small gaps, where I see the Spirit convicting me hard, uh, increasing my understanding of the Scriptures in ways that I know that are one beyond my ability and certainly beyond my default position of my heart to want to agree with God and to come to terms with Him. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So um, those are all great things. I think there's a more foundational thing we can look to, though. Fine. So go ahead. <laughs> so there's there's something that we, um, anytime we're talking about a subjective assessment, right? Anytime we're talking about subjective assessment, those things are liable to fail. So whether it's I I trust I have assurance because I hate my sin. Well, sometimes non-believers hate their sin, right? They may not call it sin, but sometimes they hate the the wicked things they do. They hate that they lie to their friends. They hate that they cheated on their spouse. They hate that they um, are not as diligent. Whatever. They hate all these things that they know are wrong. But usually for like different reasons. Sure. And you know, we're t yeah, not necessarily as an offense to God Himself. But I get what you're saying. Right. So, but there's always an element in subjective assessments. Right. And that's where the fruit checking comes in. That's a subjective assessment, right? I'm looking at my fruit and I'm making a subjective assessment, meaning that I, as the subject and the one determining whether or not this is true in terms of my observations, but the objective assurance that we have in Christ is twofold. One, we have the promises of Christ that all who trust him will surely be saved, right? That is what we look to, right? When we look in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how we have a sure anchor for our soul. And the things it's based on are the fact that God made a promise and he made a promise on the basis of his unchanging self. So we have to objectively look to Christ. Even, even the Lutherans who think they're really objective in this say, look to your baptism, but your baptism is object is subjective, right? There's all sorts of Lutherans who were baptized that apostatize at some point. The only objective reality we can look to is the promises of God. So I can look to Christ and I can look to his promises that say, all who come to me will find rest. All who are thirsty and drink from me will never thirst again. Anyone who believes and trusts in me will never die forever. Right? All of these promises throughout scripture we can look to. And then I just want to read this one verse out of Romans. Let me, let me pull it up here. I have too many tabs open. It's uh, Romans 8. I love Romans 8, uh, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to the death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit as of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with or to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So there are two objective realities that we can look to. There are the promises of Christ and there is the internal indwelling testimony of the spirit. Now, 
the testimony of the spirit is appropriated subjectively. So we have to be careful with that because right, exactly. sometimes we can just have indigestion and we think it's the Holy Spirit. But every Christian that I know, every Christian period has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. And that, that Holy Spirit, he has promised us that he will bear witness to us that we are children of God. Only after we have looked to those two objective realities should we ever be going to check our fruit, right? Because there are a lot of really nice Mormons who donate lots of money and do lots of great civic duties and don't swear and don't smoke and don't hang out with those who do, right? Those things are not enough to bring us assurance. But the objective reality of Jesus Christ and his promises and what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf that he will never forsake and never lose any whom the Father has given to him and all who the Father has given to him will come to him in faith. That is where we get our assurance. Now, I got into a little bit of a, of a dust up with a guy who was talking about Lordship Controversy and his response was, don't ever look inside because there's nothing good inside of you. And my response was, what about the Holy Spirit? <laughs> the Holy Spirit is really good and he's inside of me. So if you're listening to my voice, and you struggle with assurance, look to the promises of Christ. Look to his word and his promises and run to him and trust him, right? Everything else comes after that. Everything else comes after that. You don't have to, you don't have to hate your sin utterly. That's not to say that you can cling to your sin, but you don't have to let your sin go before Jesus will save you, right? That's the heart of the marrow controversy, right? We don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus. So, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm spinning myself out here, but I feel like this is just a topic that's been so divisive and destructive in reform circles because we don't take time to think about it. And it's really, really important. Sounds good to me. <laughs> take us home. Jesse has this sort of deer in the headlights look like he's not sure. I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of got John Piper hands going on tonight. I think. Yeah. Do you were moving around quite a bit there? We'll just do some hand motions. It's like an interpretive dance sometimes with John Piper. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. <sighs> I feel good getting that off my chest, Jesse. I, I can tell. I feel I'm lighter. glad that you feel lighter. Do you have anything to add? This was a this was a Tony heavy episode. I want to make sure you have your say before we we wrap it up. No, I I think you know I'm down with everything that you said. I think that even some of the definitions you give there, it's it's sometimes hard for people to wrap their round, minds around objective truth. And we say, well, the objective is to trust in God, to trust in the promises, and those things are all true. I think the the second derivative or second order question is, well, how do I know yeah. that I'm trusting in those promises? And I think you answered that to, to some extent by saying. Well, your spirit, the, the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. There is a change. There is stuff going on, but that does not make justification happen. Yeah, it, it merely shows that you can have assurance that God is present with you, that you unified with him, and that something different is, is going to happen. Something is going to move forward in your life of which God is overall. I mean, the great yeah. irony of Lordship Salvation is it presumes that you and I can somehow make him Lord when he is Lord already. Right. So... Um, if we can turn it on its head, all salvation is in some way, quote unquote, lordship salvation. Yeah. Um, because he is overall. Yeah. So it, it's worth keeping this conversation going for sure. I encourage other people to, to think about it and to talk to their to people whom they trust about this kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it is, you know, our faith is frail and fickle and it's fluid and we, you know, it grows, it, it wanes and it it comes back and the beauty of it is that it's not the quality of our faith that brings us assurance or salvation but it's the object of our faith so we can have faith like a mustard seed or we can have faith that moves a mountain right and those are qualitatively different faiths but all of our faith any faith even this faith of a mustard seed is sufficient for christ to save us because it is through that faith that we come into union with him, that he grasps us and we return the grasp as we've been, we've been clung to. So it's just a, 
I said it before when I read Christ the Lord by the edited collection by Horton or the Sanctification book by Michael Allen, which I just finished and it's amazing. It really is a game changer. So get your hands on those books, read them, read them again, read them again, highlight them, write in them, just digest those books. They're so, so important. Um, I just can't emphasize enough how important it is that we get this because until we get this, we're going to constantly be struggling with this idea that we have not performed well enough. And right. the answer is you can't perform well enough. You cannot. So that doesn't mean don't try, right? Don't go the Tulian Chavidian route and say that it doesn't matter because it matters so much. But you can never perform well enough to root your assurance in it because it will always fail. It will always be less than enough. Um, but Christ is never less than enough. Right. Well said. So, um, Seek the Lord. Seek um, guy, you know, godly counsel on this. If you're struggling, feel free to email us, but make sure you talk to your pastor. We, we don't want to be the first person you go to if you're struggling with assurance, but we're happy to be the second or third person you go to. Um, but really just seek the Lord on this. Well said. Yep. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.